Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Uh, how is Norway? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm in Norway. I'm in Oslo. Yeah. I don't know how the rest of Norway is going because it's a huge, it's kind of a huge country. Is, uh, it goes is, all the way up to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, is, is Norway about as north as Toronto? I, um, I mean, Oslo, I think is Oslo at the same height? I think it's fur- further north, actually. Uh, I know it's further north for because uh, the the daylight hours here are insane right now. Like the sun <laughs> sets around eleven p.m. Yeah, and then this morning I woke up around three a.m. because the sun was rising, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that was a short uh, evening." And it never never really goes down uh, the sun. Yeah. So like the, yeah, at four a.m. There's like bright What's sun this? in your yeah. How does it? Kind of thing. You have breakfast at three in the morning. No, you just feel like you're always sleeping in, like you're totally unproductive. But then mm-hmm. at night, it feels like, wow, the day is limitless. Like you don't get that anxiety that the day is running out of time mm-hmm. because it's just always daytime. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember as a kid, uh, we always talk a lot about memories, but it, as a kid, you're used to going to sleep when it's dark. And then in the summer in the Netherlands, the sun goes down at 10. And when you're five, it's really hard to understand. Wait, it's still day, but I have to sleep. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's funny you say that because like uh, every night as I go to bed, I can hear children playing outside. <laughs> it's like ten, it's like eleven thirty, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we have the time of our lives." <laughs> yeah, and I guess their parents are just like, "Yeah, school's out. You guys can have fun. Yeah, you're playing." But the, the, the what do you call it? Longitude and uh, with, uh, north south. Oh, longitude and, and latitude. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's always weird to me that New York is at the same height. Uh, is that latitude? Mm-hmm. Uh, as yeah, as Barcelona, right. I think. But the winters are so cold here, so you don't think of it as Southern Europe Mediterranean climate. But uh, right, yeah. like I get, think if you go to Southern Norway, you're into parts of like the tip of Norway kind of pokes into parts of Southern Europe as well. Uh, but it's I don't know. Wait, yeah, I don't anyway, understand that. Or maybe it's England, Scotland. <laughs> I don't know. I actually. think, so, I yeah. I don't think the south uh, of Norway is touching Italy. No, no, it's not. No. It's definitely not the south of Europe, but I think it's like, uh, it's just that I should, we should look at a map where it sounds so ignorant. But it's just a really top tall, Nor- long country. Yeah, it's a very tall, long country. And like the top is in the Arctic Circle and the bottom is not. So. The world map is so weird. Like why, Scandinavia as a whole is very tall and then they divide it into very thin strips. Hmm. What do you mean by thin strips? Like, like all the, the countries oh, the way are very they divide the countries. Yeah. I don't know if they had anything. If they how that was decided because I mean at one point it was all the Danish. I imagine uh, some very, very peaceful meeting. You get to this strip and you get to this strip. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more like the like the Danes that made a lot of the decisions. But I guess the Swedes also had control for a while. I guess that's why uh, it but, makes sense that the Danes have more a country that's shaped like a country. But one thing you should know is that the Sami people were a nomadic tribe that was here far bef- like long before mm-hmm. those people and they were more they were nomadic so they moved across Scandinavia and even into Asia and um, you know hunted and moved around a lot with you know yeah. with different weather patterns and stuff and, and they and they got the herds. bad end of the deal yeah, the Sami uh, in Norway were very mistreated, uh, similar to indigenous communities in Canada where I'm from and probably the United States and Australia. Uh, in Australia, for sure, and that's still an issue here, actually. And and then there's people who argue that the the pagans got the short end of the stick when the Christians came in. So, mm-hmm. well, I think the Christians are universally bad. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> like, well, they're, they're very like, uh, territorial. 
They yeah, they did a lot of murdering to convince people of Christ. Well, in the uh, name of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> they had to kill a lot of people to convince them. I, I, no, this is the right way. Yeah. I'll show you. Look, I'll cut off your head. I just watched that movie <laughs> War free. Machine on Netflix. It's a big, oh, yeah, big release like with that's uh, with Brad Pitt. What's what? Is it with Brad Pitt? Yeah, okay. but it's all about like how, how how confusing war is now. Mm. Was that that was a few years ago, or is that a new movie? No, it just came War-ish. out this week. It, it's an it's a strategy for Netflix to make. Uh, blockbuster size movies that are released online first and what's the target demographic because they always figure out like based on data oh i have no idea i think i think this is a a movie that appeals to a pretty wide spectrum Mm. because there's a new norm mcdonald uh, comedy special and i was like "Mm, yes that's yeah uh, they know that norm mcdonald's trending on my youtube they have all the movies with adam sandler and i think they calculated that people say (laughs) they don't want adam sandler movies but the data shows they do Right. Yeah. Yeah. Adam said, yeah, I mean, that's not what today we're talking. We should get to the, you know, we never get to the point about what we're talking about. We always try and find an elegant segue. But yeah, um, why do we do that? I was supposed to pick, uh, I think because we think that we're good at this. Can I I just ask one? I I, I was curious if the, when you first got your laptop, the new one, you were kind of bummed and thought of returning it. How do you feel about it now? Um, Okay, I'm, uh, I, I like it because I'm traveling with it and it's very light compared to my old laptop. And Kristen, my partner, she's like traveling with my old laptop, <laughs> like she got my hand-me-down. And she's like, it's it's actually a, a tremendous burden for her. And so, yeah. I, and it makes me feel bad actually that she got it. But down. she's but also like, physically stronger than years. you. She's pretty strong. Yeah. yeah, she is actually stronger than I am. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I like it in that I've noticed that I don't do that much intense work anyway. Okay. Uh, so I've thought about, uh, I have a desktop at home where I'm doing my intense stuff. So that's my resolution. But for like, performances, hey, just good y- you kind of need a, a lot of power? I I do, but like, I realize, I mean, I'm just, I'm not innovating on tech on my performances these days. One of the reasons I'm in Oslo is actually because I'm working on um, I'm leading a residency here and it's kind of an evolution of my practice in a way to help other artists as we've talked about previously mm-hmm. but um, to work with them and give them tools and those the technologies I'm working I'm working with more and more I've noticed have been are more like management technologies like and slack like, and email and yeah exactly no. or those would be tool like yeah technical tools bef- that would be the technology that I'm using before we segue into this week's topic I'm just curious if the the touch bar has any use at all currently inactive because it goes to sleep <laughs> yeah but <laughs> but, but uh, do you do you ever use other buttons than like brightness and uh, volume sound yeah i have one custom button for uh, sleeping all notifications that i press all oh the time. okay and then yeah. if you're in a word processor or an email do you use like the bolt button or the italic button no. that come up and no those ca- or, no. Or are you djing with it no, but I'm editing some video right now, and I remembered that it's supposed to be good for video editors, but I didn't use it. Are you <laughs> using like, Final oh, yeah, Cut or Premiere? Premiere, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's more optimized for Final Cut, yeah. Yeah, I, I stopped using Final Cut when they changed the interface so radically that I when they, like when my they, 10 uh, years of experience. When they infantilize, what do you call it? Infantile? Infantilized it. But, yeah. like, but like, I think for me, the bigger problem was, and it's like, it was like you sometimes you invest a lot of energy in learning a tool and become an ex- expert at it and you develop all these workarounds and hacks for how to use it better than anyone else can use it and suddenly it's like yeah you've learned to forge metal 
And then it's like they changed the furnace <laughs> controls and everything. And I was like, uh, suddenly the thing. They're like, oh, we're switching to plastic. Like, gonna, yeah. yeah, like I have a master's in video art. And like I, I used to teach Final Cut Pro. <laughs> now I can barely use it. it so it's like you, you had to move from the Bronze Age to the next one, but you're just so good at bronze. And then. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, man, I don't want to smelt steel. (laughs) (laughs) These bronze swords are fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But with editing, there's not much innovation that needs to happen. It's like the standard timeline format came from like film. Like if you've ever seen a physical editing bay, have you ever seen an edit? Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful. It's really, they they actually use scotch tape to put stuff together. Yeah, but the scotch tape dispenser is actually better designed than anyone you have in your own home. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, which they should have But that's really, anyway, when they said but, cutting, yeah. it's really, yeah, you really take scissors and cut it. Yeah, but like that's really, most editors know, like the tools that you have that are most useful are like just the razor blade and like moving things around on a timeline, right? It's mostly cutting and well, pasting. I, I do think there's something about sort of Snapchat editing or sort of wild amateur editing that uh, is definitely mm-hmm. not possible with film. So, yeah, if you're trying to make a Stanley no, no. Kubrick what I mean is film, like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, sure, what I... Yeah, but what I mean is, like, digital editing tools evolved to make those slices thinner or, mm-hmm. like, more uh, condensed and do things that you couldn't do in physical space, for sure. But, like, the idea of a timeline and clips that you superimpose or cut... Um, you know, it's kind of remains. But that's kind of saying uh, that a, a word process is basically the same as a typewriter. Mm, word processing, it is the same as a typewriter. Yeah. It's just one allows you to like, you know, you could edit on a typewriter. It's just a little slower, right? <laughs> a word process is just a fast typewriter. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's a big leap. That's pretty because uh, there's a trend in word processing, which is really interesting. Actually, is towards less controls and more focus. Yeah, so like there's all these tools where. It's but like, I think that's mostly targeted at amateurs. Well, I know that it's no, it's not. I know that Microsoft found because I had a friend who worked at Microsoft and like that they had a problem where it's like they were releasing new features to sell new versions of Microsoft, and the adoption rate was really low. <laughs> I think it was like people were using about ten percent of the overall product, and they said like. It was very frustrating for the development teams, and because they're like, well, well they, you said they basically you these things. Yeah, they they added layout features and web development features and collaboration yeah. features, and then Google Docs just is a simple word processor. Yeah, in the end, all you needed was uh, turns out like a keyboard and the ability to see the letter you typed on screen. And I think there's a bunch of apps that have taken advantage of that. I have a bunch of them where. AI writer, or IA writer, rightly or wherever. Yeah, anyway, yeah. there's like tons of different. I, I just feel like the apps. those tools to me and all the blogs about it are another form of procrastination because mm-hmm. there's there's text edit or like WordPad or Notepad or those very simple tools that are mm-hmm. already on your computer and you can just hide all the other apps and so it's yeah, but another the idea fetish. Is like a big a big white piece of paper with no controls. Yeah, but Notepad already existed. Mm-hmm. In the end, I end up opening a browser. And <laughs> that's the most powerful yeah. writing feature that's ever existed. Yeah, I just wanted a little... I, I was just curious about if that toolbar was useful at all. But uh. Uh, Yeah, so it's not that useful, no. but it doesn't really mo- bother me at all. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get... Like, the, the things that are great about this laptop are the form. It's the industrial design. But it does uh, make this weird popping sound. Like and there's a, there were reports of it on the internet and it happens on my computer too, which is like, as it's getting going, it's like a bottle, you know, a plastic bottle in the sun, hmm. like 
kind of pop or like crunch like <laughs> like like it's and it so yeah. it makes that sound almost like it's decompressing itself it's a bit weird i'm gonna wait until the is, second but... or third version of this yeah, yeah maybe well i can always just sell mine i guess yeah. So, so yeah, what this, was we going to talk about today? We're gonna talk, <laughs> I suggested it was your uh, turn to pick a topic, but then I thought we should talk about management because it really is a topic at the heart of everything you do now. Yeah, and I just, I, it's funny, I was just having, um, so I'm in Oslo, I'm leading this residency and we're, I'm bringing in different mentors to work with these artists. And one of them is this guy, Jason Huff, who works at Etsy and I just welcomed him from the airport and we went out and had a sandwich and some coffee and within a few minutes like there were some other people from the residency there but within a few minutes we were just talking management about management yeah yeah like really excitedly yeah yeah back and forth like two like school kids be like oh my god have you tried this decentralization technique well it's it, it, <laughs> what about 20 percent time it's that thing that they always say when when rich people get together they talk about art and when artists get together they talk about money so it's it's never what you mm. expect. Like you think artists are like, oh, pink next to blue. Yes. Oh, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, yeah. So the residency I'm leading is on art and entrepreneurship. And then I was at an opening a couple nights ago and I met a collector and he was like a banker. And I was talking with a friend and then we just got so excited talking about finance and uh, in relationship with art because he collects on behalf of the bank. And you could see, like, he was really passionate about talking about collecting, but we wanted to talk to him about bank <laughs> financing and, like, mortgage structures. Yeah, and he's <laughs> not interested. And he's, like, he, you could see he was, like, getting so bored, and it was like we were destroying the dream that the artist... Well, also, I think romantic. for him, that, that uh, conversation with you would be about finance would be very superficial because he yeah. it's, it's the basics. So maybe he's excited to talk about finance with other experts, but not with someone who's not in the game. Yeah. So, I mean, while I was, I was talking to him, I did, a, I started talking, when I talk to people or socialize with them now, I start, I've started doing this, um, using interview techniques from design. Uh, like You're such practice. a manipulator. You have it all figured out how you talk to people. It's, like, it's so funny gonna, you say that because Kristen, Kristen said the same thing. I'm going to get this <laughs> and then I'm going to get this. and uh, Yeah. No, it's fine. I just wanted to talk to him about his underlying motivation. I just, well, I just like, like, I just like. Uh, poking your bubble because you're the, the 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 superhero good guy, and then I'm just trying to find it. <laughs> the, right, last right. week, I tried to find, I tried to accuse you of being a, a lazy consumer by go, for going to Uniqlo, but then we yeah. found out through a friend that Uniqlo is actually not that bad of a company. That's right. Someone wrote in yeah. and, and said great things. Someone about who wants to remain anonymous, but who worked with Uniqlo and in a capacity, and who also worked with more luxury brands, and he said. The luxury brands are actually environmentally less aware than Uniqlo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or yeah, less responsible. They don't, they don't. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know the reasons for that, but um, it was nice to hear that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> but back, I guess back to management. Um, it, yeah, so I'm here working with artists, and management's on my mind because artists really are often working alone, but for them to we've talked about this previously in other podcasts to get to kind of a next level or to really affect change in the world. Cause so the residency I'm leading is around the, it's, the theme is artist entrepreneur, but it's really about how do you like a bunch of things. Can you, can you rewind is, a little bit about how the, yeah. how the residency started? Because I'm interested how they got to you. And if you started first as a visiting artist and then they were like, we want you in a bigger role. Mm. 
Yeah, so they invite. They have a structure. They're right. What's, the, what's the name is, of like, the place? It's called Praxis. It's very small. It's only been around for a year. It's based in Oslo. Started by a local um, Oslo uh, person and their partner, who's from London, um, Nicholas Jones, who leads it. But uh, his he came to Oslo feeling like he wanted to bring international perspectives and here. Is, is it a new media related? Uh, residency? Uh, no, it's not new media regulated. Rel- uh, but their first residency was about was with uh, Larry Archipong and David Blandly and Blandy, and they did um, the Posthuman was their first re- mm. residency. So they've always there is tech, but the last one was with Lindsay Sears. Is she does I guess media based works. Um, it's not strictly that. It's what I, I think it's uh, artists that Nicholas knows or respects and. That he feels can uh, make an impact on the Norwegian mm. art scene and the Oslo one specifically, and if Oslo, I think we've talked about small countries before, you know, is like has that a little bit of that problem of being yeah. inward looking. It's it's far away and from. So, uh, it's, it's geographically, it's just kind of in a corner. Yeah, and even people here talk about feeling isolated the same way you'll hear Australians talk about it a bit too, um, and so. The idea was bringing an international artist out to be a mentor or leader for the residency, mm-hmm. and I've been to residencies like that before. It's like one style of residency yeah. can help, like create a context around which. But, but were locals you? Did you visit before? Because this is a big commitment, or did it just all happen over email? Yeah, I visited last. I always insist now if I'm going to do a major commitment to visit. So I visited for a week last year, mm-hmm. and just to, on during the first residency to see how it was working, and I kind of liked what I saw. And I thought it was an interesting challenge. So, as as an artist, to start to think about how an you know what an artwork can be, and does an artwork have to be material? It's funny because I was watching this the Astor Gates um, TED Talk. It's funny that the Astor Gates did a TED Talk, but uh, I don't know if people are aware of the Astor Gates, but he's a uh, Chicago-based artist, and he was a potter when he started. Like he started um, in pottery, and so he's used to. He talks about he you know he started at shaping clay, and then. He that stuck with him as like a way of working, shaping things, like starting from nothing, just a raw material like clay and making something out of it. And now he's best known for his work in redeveloping neighborhoods in Chicago as artworks. Uh, he started with one building and then he built a neighborhood and now he's building this big green belt in Chicago. Um, and then he's also then created a template for other cities to start to work the way he does in terms of rezoning derelict properties um, to become community centers and uh, museums and galleries. And he created like a, a, a theater or cinema for black cinema in West. Anyway, he's just totally kind of changed the game in a lot of ways. And he's had to like make artwork out of finance, make artwork out of remortgaging, make artwork out of communities, make artwork out of building. And I think he he said something that really resonates with me, and I I knew about his work previously, but this uh, video is a good one for me to put in the show notes, which is like you know he's it's still just shaping clay, right? Like you're shaping how people interact. Yeah, I don't the agree that. How I, I did not agree with that. Why? Because you can. It, it, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not saying that at all. I think it's great he's doing that, but I I don't think doing a social project with a lot of people that doesn't result in a, in an object is a mm-hmm. completely different thing it's not it's not the same i understand he's the same person doing it and his brain is processing information in the same way so but mm-hmm. for example i make music with a friend and there's a similar logic with 
using very few uh, uh, instruments and, and having a stripped down aesthetic and a way of working, but the result is a completely different thing and it uh, the distribution of the result is a different thing. So when I make that, it's the same person, but it's like Andy mm. Warhol making the factory or making paintings. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things that come out of the same mindset, but him creating a social situation or him uh, making a statement on, on the history of painting and how you... It's a similar logic, but I I don't think you can simply say... I can see it. You're almost there. You're almost there. Because like, Andy Warhol did create a situation. So I, the, the, the leap I'm going to make here, I think that is maybe... Uh, my my point is that like the Astor realized at a certain point that uh, he had to work with other people to achieve a result. Uh, yeah. you know, the artwork that he wanted to achieve. Because he... You know, he did this first house, but to do like the next phase, he really needed to involve the community, and then he needed to involve, you know, the country, and then he needed to involve the world, yeah. or whatever. But like, but maybe my point when, is, when you, what does it result in? I don't know his, his work, but is there a result in the end that can a solid thing, something other than well, a story that survives? Okay, let's say as a thought experiment, you're uh, you make drawings, and then you say one day, well, I'm going to make sculptures, right? Yeah. And then you make a sculpture and you're like, mm, I want to make a sculpture that people can sit on, right? And then you're like, well, that's interesting. The way people are sitting on that sculpture changes the way they behave, right? Mm-hmm. And then you think, well, what if I made a sculpture that was a building, right? And that's architecture, right? At what point you draw the line? And then no, that there's no need for lines. I'm just, I'm just saying that the, uh, mm-hmm. the experience is so different. And mm-hmm. I know this from making... Uh, internet art and making music and making haiku and making all these different things and also doing mm-hmm. BYOB um, well, maybe it all is the same No, it, the, I think my thinking is that like where I want to go is that I think so once you get to to understanding that like the way people behave in a in within a context and that context can be visual or architectural or spatial um, once you make that re- you have that realization you realize that like how people work together, which is management, is also a kind mm-hmm. of art making. <laughs> That's well, like, yeah. Um, my my problem with when uh, I completely understand it when you're working and you're like, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that. But mm-hmm. then at some point you're like, well, maybe politics is an artwork too, and, and maybe war is a, a work of art. Maybe mm. baking is a work of art. Maybe uh, a traffic controller is an artist because he's he's conducting a symphony and. Maybe someone who makes uh, mm-hmm. maybe Uber is an artwork because it's changing perception, and then the the word art just becomes very problematic because it's like oh maybe a surgeon is right. an artist because he improves human lives and uh, maybe yeah yeah I mean after a few glasses of wine you know you yeah you end up with my mother being like I'm making art as she yeah. like throws her yeah, hands yeah 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 exactly I'm like, doing the dishes isn't I, it I, beautiful yeah. I don't think there's any problem with that. However, I will... Okay, I'll, I'll problematize it for you. One way that, that that is problematic is currently in the world, the way art is funded is being restructured. Whether people are aware of it, our listeners are not, I think some of them probably are either victims of it or propagators of it. But like one reality here in Oslo, which I think is interesting, you know, that it's a very... So artists here are funded. They can get full funding just to live as artists. Yeah, there's a lifetime However, grant, right? I heard about that. 
Yeah. Um, and we've talked about this previously, like that, how that, that can affect the type of work you yeah. make. But that economic structure is actually shifting. And the Norwegian government recently made it possible for, they restructured things to be about uh, creative industries. So they don't call it art anymore. Now they call it creative industries. <laughs> and as creative industries funds, the um, seemingly other groups of people who don't call themselves artists now have access to this money. Mm-hmm. So someone was telling me, uh, someone that sits on the board of the artist union here, like, so now like the tourism board is accessing yeah, yeah, these yeah. funds. And that's what I mean. And that's now, exactly like, what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now designers are getting access. But I, I understand However, it from both. Like I have a good friend who started a mm-hmm. radio station in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and he all his friends were artists and they would get all this funding and they often weren't even using the funding that well. And he has this mm-hmm. radio station that is really nurturing uh, uh, alternative music or weird music and doing very interesting ways. But because he's an entrepreneur and an artist, he can't get funding. So he has to get it in other ways. And they're very smart about how they use their money because they have so little. But it, mm-hmm. so there's good cases of it, but there's also bad cases where it's like, oh, this could totally survive on its own in the commercial world. Uh, why does it need this sort of art funding? Yeah, and that, maybe that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Is that it, if it if it could survive? So here's the funny thing. In, based on what you just said, is an assumption that if something's commercially successful or sustainable, it's not art. <laughs> so, no, no, no. That's not what I'm uh, saying. I know, but you did say that if it could, you know, no, if it I'm saying need the funding, I'm saying if you're not like if you're doing social projects, so it's not you're not making solid artworks but you're doing something ephemeral Mm -hmm. that's about process and meeting of people and there's no actual visual result at the end but then Mm -hmm. some people get a wind of it and they're like oh i I have a hamburger place but if i frame it as a conceptual artwork i can actually get half of half of the budget for free and i'll be richer so you you get this and then it's Uh, but you're getting back to you're getting back to like the core what is art question yeah. that's a bit cliche but is really always, well when there's funding you really always, have to define in- what is art yeah. yeah well that's why intent matters yeah. so uh. much like did you intend what did you intend mm-hmm. uh for this work right and then it also you're like the dreaded word critical comes yeah. <laughs> it's like if it's critical and your intent was to be critical then potentially it's yeah art, so you start an ironic burger place and then <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and like I'm less and less interested in these distinctions. In fact, that argument about like, okay, so there's this now it's creative industries and the tourism board has access to it. Well, if the tourism board acted more like an artist, I would be thrilled, right? Like if they were mm. if they were helping change the hegemony or change the way regular people behave such that like they explored their uh, you know, neighborhoods. It's a funny thought though when you say if the tour- tourism board acted more like art that could work both ways. It could be cool, but it could also be they <laughs> start to work like uh, an auction house and they only provide tours for the, for the 0.001% mm. and they auction it off and there's like tours that cost $100 million. That could be a version of the tourism board acting like artists. Mm. Well, I think like the private art market is maybe a, like a whole other conversation about whether it even can be considered... Oh, this is going to be tough. I don't know if, I should go. It's like, if, if a work of art is sold within certain private art market parameters, whether and if it, it can no longer be social in a way because it compromises its own context and integrity, whether that is art at all. Right. Yeah. It, like what what's the difference between a painting sold by, you know, uh, at, at auction versus like um, 
an artifact from a ship that went down in you know the Second World War that uh, where there's an object. Well, also, at some point, it just becomes a curiosity. Yeah, that people I find, mean, so. uh, when you when you visit here in New York, you can always visit the auction uh, exhibitions. So they have all these top pieces, mm-hmm. but they in the same building they sell fine wine and expensive cars and apartments. So yeah, uh, they're really like in the lobby. Uh, I don't remember which auction house, but there was a a Ferrari F1 car, like a classic, and they and they have a. I'm not exaggerating. There's literally there's a wine boutique there with uh, classic wines mm-hmm. that have been there for fifty years, and uh, yeah. there's a catalog of cars and there's a catalog of vintage uh, Chanel stuff and yeah it's but I think outside of the arts this is what a lot of non-artists would you know say is wrong with the arts is that there's a refusal it's almost like the arts are just like a bunch of gatekeepers right so it's like okay like and and oftentimes the gatekeepers it's there's a knowledge gap which is I think important to recognize that artists have really deep knowledge and about theory and history that that, that um, also is their value meaning of objects yeah, and the, and then they understand, you know, how an object functions in context with those things, and so they're really masterful at that, right? But to say that someone from another discipline couldn't do the same thing, right? So because there are designers that I think do this um, and don't get acknowledged among artists until like MoMA does a show, yeah, with them or something, right? Well, it, like Charles and Rayims are a good example of, of two designers that were working together, and they're working in a very innovative way that we would now consider art, but there wasn't an understanding of that type of work as art right they were like they they were working spatially and they were they were they were there were formal considerations like the long zoom which was one of their i mean sort of inventions because michael snow also did a film but like they did this they were the first people to do like a long zoom from space into you know your home right which is now we consider like a fundamental concept in the way humanity sees itself um but they were just considered designers working on a world fair well for already for you to say they were considered just designers is is already a value judgment because for some people designers are much more interesting than artists so you could say you're just an artist but this person is a designer <laughs> this is incredible this takes part in the world and and uh, distributes to everybody and takes responsibility but an artist is just masturbating yeah so yeah, i mean for you yeah. to it's it's a small thing to say but for you to say is it's considered just a designer already makes it sound like you put artists on a higher plateau than designers yeah i think that socially that's no i don't think socially uh, i don't think the audience at large a lot of people are more excited about design than about art mm -hmm. it's you that made that judgment jeremy you you caught me (laughs) this is my new hobby for the podcast i think uh, (laughs) yeah i see traps sets up traps and i I just wanted to i'm I'm trying not to i'm uh, working on not interrupting you too much but then i have this stuff i want it um i just did a talk with uh, one of the creators of the after dark screensaver series and Mm -hmm. he's from canada oh yeah from your country and oh i didn't know that and so they they started making screensavers, and they had to convince people that they should buy a screensaver. Well, they released them for free at first, and people were happy. But then they went to a trade show, and they're like, "Why would anyone ever pay for an animation that runs when you're not using your computer? That doesn't make any sense." And so, it's the same thing as art, where you're just selling useless stuff, and mm-hmm. and people are weirded out. But at some point, his booth was surrounded with more and more people because they were mesmerized by these weird infinite images but 
I, I spoke to him a bit before the panel talk to get to know him, and he wanted to study art, but everybody in his environment uh, told him not to. It's like, oh, you'll be broke your whole life. So he's like, okay, I'll mm-hmm. start working with computers, and you can be there's creativity and invention. So he he came at it from that angle. But everything they made to me is is uh, very similar in the mindset of artists. It, there's, there's no real. Um, we're not really talking about management a whole lot, huh? but no. But I know what we are talking about right now is positioning. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, he he. It's this very free form of creativity, the screensaver, because there's not much of a brief other than make something that moves. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's even kind of, to me, the screensavers are more free because they're not burdened by art history. So it's a very free way of thinking. It's like, okay, I'll make some flying toasters. Why not? So... Mm. You say burdened by art history, but I might say privileged by art history. Like we build on the shoulders. Yeah, but it's also very freeing when you're unaware. And uh, Mm -hmm. so you, you could argue for both, but in the same way, children are free. So, what I mean uh, is that so he, they as a company with thirty people made a whole uh, suite of screensavers that influenced culture, but it's not considered art. But it it, it mm-hmm. did permeate a lot more. It did influence a lot more lives. So, um, yeah, the the intent thing, it wasn't intended as, as art, but kind of because he did want to go to art school. Here's one thing I think that would, I mean, so I do think we're talking about positioning now, which is like how one, how uh, you position your and work distribution. or your or your product or whatever it is in relationship with your audience, mm-hmm. right? And the, you, you're in control of that for a, for a period of time, uh, you know, which is the initial release of something, after which point, like your intent or your positioning is determined by your audience, right? So sometimes you say, this is a car and actually turns out to be... Um, uh, you know, recategorized as like um, a car is a bad example. Let's say like, uh, let's say you come out with an artwork and actually turns out to be useful. Yeah, Maybe yeah. it's now design or whatever. Yeah. But like every once in a while an institution comes along and is like, wow, we found this like folk artist or wow, we found this designer or something and they grace them as like a genius and we, and then like you said earlier, they pull them into another world and they say like, this is, this is yeah, well, design, there's, it's there's art. There's also something about uh, uh, objects that you make that are embedded in real life and then they lose their mm-hmm. function. And mm-hmm. then they might be interesting and become more interesting because they lost their function. It's really, oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait, there's a lot more going on. I was very busy at the time because it was part of the office. Mm-hmm. But now that I look at it without the office context, I see it in a different way. Right. Hmm. I was going to go somewhere with this. Mm-hmm. I've lost my train of thought, which is terrible. <laughs> well, let's talk about management. Let's talk about how... It, because artists... I think that's you had your coming out sort of, of saying I have a day job and I manage people and I work together with a lot of people, which is the opposite of what. Yeah, well, so because I more and more I'm realizing that what I'm excited about is um, change. Like you said, when you oh yeah, that's, when you said like the screensaver changed a lot of lives. I think what's interesting about what you implied is that for something to be significant, it has to affect change, right? No, like, but, but it, I think specifically with screensavers, I mean that the distribution is is so vast. Yeah, but like I could distribute Q-tips uh, globally, and I the the impact I've had is I ears are cleaner. Mm-hmm. Or but I oh, also no, there's also ecstatic like moments when people use the Q-tips; it feels so good. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the type of cha- like everything affects change in the world, right? Like, you, if you put something out into the world, it's like as Steve Jobs cliche, you know, as you poke the world in it and it pokes you yeah. back, or whatever, right? And so the distinction sometimes between the way the what you know the the intent you know that you 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 think you're poking it one way, but you're poking it another way. But like uh, the difference in, between art and like a Q-tips would be like that the type of poking that's going on is on a is potentially or the intent is on a much larger scale like no, a lot a of artists no smaller scale you mean you think so yeah i think as an artist i'm not sure i'm i'm understanding you but i think as an artist well, think, you should be okay with the fact that maybe only one or two people in your whole lifetime will be interested mm. in it and you have to take that leap and not compromise by thinking oh i need to reach a lot of people But that sounds very altruistic and pure, but there's a lot of artists that have, you know, and maybe there are a lot of even art students that are thinking, why did you become an artist? And they think, like, they'll say something like, well, I feel a certain way and I just have to express myself and I want to change the way people think about yeah. this thing, right? And if they say that I want, they want to change the way people think, that's a mass scale problem. Yeah, but I that's think if like you have that intention, you, it, it's better to be in something that is, uh, has, then it's better to be in cinema than to be in art. Well, I don't know. Like the arts, try and do this in general. I think musicians come along every once. Yeah, in a yeah, while. no, like, musicians for sure, and movies for sure. I just think if you really are like, oh, I want to change people's perception and I want to uh, affect mm-hmm. culture. I think art is just a very. It's possible, but it's uh, a very clumsy. Uh, it's like it, maybe ten artists ever in art history affected pop culture, and the rest is just like an inward conversation between artists. Well, they've affected a lot of other artists. I guess. Yeah, but it, 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 you have to be at peace that it's a very uh, hidden thing. Well, so the Venice Biennale just happened. Uh, yeah, which it sounds like a big a, thing to you, like, but uh, I mean, the Venice Biennale mm-hmm. compared to Justin Bieber, I'm, I'm saying, if you mm-hmm. want to affect culture, uh, if that's your goal. But often, like sometimes, though, culture doesn't end with the first step. Yeah. So sometimes it's the first push. Is like think of like um you know like a, a, a like a domino like a domino right like a line of dominoes and the artist is often I think just knocking over that first domino now mm. what all the other all the other dominoes consist of different agents or actors within you know a network of of people that have influence and as each one knocks over it knocks over more of the others in in strategy for like product design they call this like a bowling yeah, pin yeah, strategy yeah. <laughs> and one bowling pin this is like a jeffrey moore kind of concept can knock over two other bowling pins and you can affect influence and change and then before long you've knocked over like a thousand but it started with what that one little kind of push but if it and i think artists are are that little but i push. love i really love Uh, discovering artists, even historically, that were completely insignificant. Mm. There's a there's a great painting in the Rijksmuseum that's just a some asparagus, a still life of some mm-hmm. asparagus, and it was completely unknown. I mean, it's in the museum; it's a pretty big deal. But I don't think that affected mm-hmm. culture and changed the way people see asparagus. But I just love that I it's mean, there. Germany. They, they... People love asparagus in Germany. I know, but not because of that painting. So what I mean is it's just great that you can... that that Not everything has to affect change. Not everything has to be big. There's this fascination with scale. And like maybe sometimes it's just really nice Mm. when something is just what it is and maybe 10 people like it, and that's fine. I mean, the truth is most often when when you add something to the world, you cause more harm 
uh, than good. But you know, theoretically speaking, your you know your carbon footprint <laughs> increases. You're potentially taking up mind share or cognitive yeah. space. Like no one would argue that like all of the millions of SEO websites we have on the internet now uh, have created any positive change, uh, and certainly they were yeah. created just for the sake of. Uh, earning well, money. that's like I, sometimes I feel like it's, it's human nature to make stuff and to be pissed off about that. It's like being angry at a lion for eating meat. Okay, but I'm just going to say something really obvious, which is like I think you know a lot of I, I believe in humanity, <laughs> and this is controversial <laughs> with you now, and that our ability to go out and try and make positive change, try and make things better for other people that attempt and the, the fact that we get it wrong so often but just the attempt itself is what makes us human and and saying what makes us human is, is like puts me in like the cliche artist category fine but i still think that it's like um it's a worthwhile uh gesture like the it's not selfish uh, for me anyway making art can't be but i yeah i know that we ha- we disagree on this but. I, i'm very happy that you're happy doing uh an entrepreneurial, social, creative industry, whatever you want to call it, a collaborative project with, with a lot of <laughs> management. But I, I cringe whenever I'm asked to participate in these things because I think I feel like I have to compromise myself when I have to make things that reach out to a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But you reach people all the time and you always downplay this. I know I, know I reach people, successful. but on my own terms in a very isolated, selfish way. And then when it's like oh can you do something that talks about the neighborhood and the people in it and they oh yeah yeah. but that doesn't make sense for you i get it right like do what makes sense for you but you still affect change and you inspire well i'm definitely someone who likes to uh my work to be distributed like it's not about the numbers it's just the fact that it's accessible but um Mm -hmm. I, I just in, growing up in the Netherlands, I've seen a lot of social art projects, and it's, it's the art is like one percent of it. It's so in the background. And like an artist will make, I've seen artworks where they take all the names of newborns in a neighborhood and uh, uh, then cast those names in bronze and put them in trees. It's just cringy. <laughs> it's awful. And mm. I don't know. But art exists. Uh, uh, I mean. I'll say something else cringy and awful or cliche again, but that I believe in is like art exists to ask questions, right? So even if it's really bad and like, it's funny, I saw this just a counterpoint. Someone showed me like this really successful Norwegian artist the other day who's like was a supermodel and became an, <laughs> an artist, <laughs> but she's really well connected in like different like, wealthy networks. Yeah. yeah, it was very, and so they should, and they're very Zoolander because their paintings are all like abstract expressionist clowns. Or not abstract expressions, but like impressionists. So there are these hideous paintings of clowns. <laughs> They're like various levels of abstraction. And they, they sell for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they simply leveraged their fame uh, to do so. So all they've done is demonstrate the... Like, it's that's the opposite of a social project. In a, in a way, it's social from the outside. I can look at it and be like, oh, that's evidence of like how nepotism and, the, and uh, networks in the art world function to yeah. great value. So there's cringeworthy um, stuff in every corner. Yeah, and her dad, it turns out, also makes like these cringeworthy statues without arms and stuff. <laughs> so, um, and that's how she was able to get a name for herself as an artist. But like clown paintings, you would think that's the most cliche thing to do. That no one, need, we don't need another clown painting. In fact, it's the butt of every art joke. Um, and here's this like super mod- Yeah, it's like a Zoolander <laughs> moment. This person doing this very selfish thing and being very successful. And I just think. 
You don't want. I don't think you want to be that. I don't think you want to be no. making clown. But let, let's talk about. <laughs> There's got to be. A let's talk ground. about management uh, because when you work at mm. FreshBooks, did we ever say that company's name? Is that a, can I say that? We're supposed to not free. We're not supposed to do free. Okay, I'll I'll, 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 I'll reverse it in this mix. But uh, you, you're very familiar with management and ma- making people like giving people space, but at the same time putting everyone in the same direction. And so mm-hmm. how do you take that uh, experience into working with artists who are not used to, to be led? So here's the thing that I'll definitely say is it's way harder to manage artists than it is to manage um, designers. Yeah, is, is it antithetical to what so artists are? This is a question I'm asking myself right now because even just getting people to respond to emails, <laughs> and if any of them are listening, please respond to your emails. <laughs> But it's like even in this residency, there's like one of the artists that uh, worked in business and she's like responds. She was in finance and she and now she's in art and she responds to emails like within one or two hours, maybe same day at the worst in worst case mm-hmm. scenario. It's very prompt, like proactive. And then every other artist, I'll, I'll write a message like, please RSVP to this thing. And it might be on Facebook or something and they'll like it. And I was like, but they won't write text like I'll be there <laughs> like They'll just like put do a thumbs up or something like that in in the. But I, I also wonder if people like, say, "Oh, artists are unorganized." Maybe it's unsuccessful artists who are unorganized. Because I think I don't know. It seems like uh, the bigger artists are the ones who are fast. Well, yeah, I've often said this, which is like the friends I have who are most successful at art operate much more like the the people I study as small business owners that are successful in small business. Um, because operating as an artist, you know, so like so much of op- running a business is social. Yeah. Um, well, that's where the management comes in. If you don't have those in, skills. Yeah. yeah, and management, um, and this is where we can talk about management. Management is mostly a social activity. So all of the best sort of management books, you know, preach this idea of like a one-to-one relationship with the people that you're you know working with and really people don't work for companies they work for managers and most of the world managers always get this bad rap like i just read another article uh the other day where it's like they always talk about middle managers like the rats or like the that's what's ruining the the world yeah they're not doing anything it's what's ruining the world like they have no inspiration they're these terrible people but they're actually like these coaches and mentors and they're working behind the scenes and trying not to take any credit but it's hard to see what they're doing um, because it's an invisible process yeah, and so they, in the media, the way to report is the manager is always this like death of a salesman character who's depressed to probably should go shoot themselves in the bathroom during breakout. <laughs> but that's maybe similar to the, the same kind of resentment I have with social projects and the same resentment with middle managers because it's it, it's very important what's going on, but then what's what are you what you're left with is a story, and you're like, I want to see an artwork. No, there's no artwork. This is all about man. It's so obvious to me, though, like when a man, here's what a manager does. And here's what an artist, the brilliant artist does, even you, (laughs) (laughs) which is you, you sit, you basically, let's think about like a dinner party or a room. You walk into an empty room and you start to change the room a little bit, right? You like start, you add a light. Maybe you put a, you know, put an artwork on the wall. You consider how people are going to enter the room and exit the room. You start to change the way that room feels, how people feel in that room. If it was a dinner party, you set, you put on some music. Maybe you choose what food's going to be served. And you make a bunch of choices. And those choices have like a tremendous impact on the way people experience that meal, let's say, at a dinner mm-hmm. party. 
And you could just like throw a bunch of hamburgers on the table and that would also be an experience. It's a different experience. Or you could like serve burnt food. <laughs> it's an experience. But you're making choices and you're trying to affect like hopefully things in a positive way. A manager's doing the exact same thing, right? They're trying to create the world's best dinner party, I think, if they're a yeah. great manager. Um, and everyone leaves work inspired to come back the next day because that holds the whole system together. They could leave work saying like, there's no way I'm going to do this tomorrow. Um, but they don't. The people come back and it's not just for a paycheck always because I've seen great managers that manage to get more out of people um, than they were, they thought they were capable of, right? Like yeah. an individual, you know, and like what's the difference between a manager and Tony Robbins? I'm not <laughs> sure, but like in a way they exist to inspire the people around them to do to sort of create something uh, collectively and to believe in themselves as a part of something so, greater and yes that's often a company but i think that could also be a social but there's a lot of artists who work with assistants and uh, especially mm-hmm. as the art industry is growing that there's a few artists that really have a lot of assistants so they're not even a manager but they're sort of like the visionary of the company And then they have managers. Mm-hmm. They have a production manager or a finance manager or a office manager, mm-hmm. and they take care of the staff. And But I think in that case, the artist is still the spaced out one who's like, okay, we're, we're sailing in that direction and not dealing with the day-to-day mm-hmm. worries. Um, but in your right. case, you're leading artists. So that's a very different... Uh, yeah, I'm just saying that I'm starting to think about management as art. Yeah. Um, And I think it might it might sound like the most boring art ever made, but I think um, I think we should really always push the frontiers like, of boringness. So that's a good direction. Yeah, I want to make uh, like for me, it's like making the invisible visible that, that has always been useful or interesting to me um, as a form of art making. The same way like solo it might make like um, I don't know like the line visible or the instruction like the underlying um, nature of a composition visible. I'd like to make. The underlying nature of our sociology mm-hmm. visible, um, but I haven't been successful yet. And I think there are, you know, like I mentioned, Theaster Gates earlier. I think he's an artist that has accomplished that. There's another artist I love, Fred Wilson, that did that. Like he has this brilliant piece, and it's just three, um, it's three mannequins wearing security guard uniforms, but the mannequins are people of color, right? They're mm-hmm. like, um, you know, real. And this is in an. If you show this in an American museum, it's a very political work right because most of the um most of the museum uh employees are people of color but anyway uh i I just think that you know when you make something invisible visible it gets you to ask the question and it can sometimes be like really eye-opening and get changes the world by changing perspectives and makes new things possible and so the the residency you've just arrived and the other artists haven't arrived because you you're talking about they're slow on email but maybe when they're there in person it's a different thing (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, some of the residents are local, and so they have jobs and stuff, and they're sort of lost in their their own things from time to time. But we're we've agreed uh, on certain times to mm. be together. That's that was like a first yeah. management uh, sort of thing. But I think anytime you work with a new group of people, I'm, pre- I'm previously I've been working with my lean artists, which are these artists working with startup methodologies, and just even getting them to respond to emails when they're in different countries and things, they're not. Um, plugged yeah. in or incentivized the same way a remote employee is. It reminds is. me, there's and always this romanticism of the, the surrealist getting together in cafes. And I don't even know if that ever happened mm. or if it was a story. If they ever yeah. showed up. <laughs> But there's this idea, it's like, oh, they would get together and have like great French wine and wear cool clothing and have these amazing brainstorms mm. that change the world. Um, 
I wonder, it, 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 it reminds me of this management project of modernist art movements, of people getting together and discussing ideas, which is mm-hmm. in this time of uh, more and more individuality, it seems very antithetical. So that's interesting. And you think we're, I think, you know, you think we're in a time of individuality, but I feel like we're tending towards um, a time of renewed kind of like socialism. Well, maybe I'm looking at, at uh, if you would have to define like art history right now, it's like, oh, what's going on? And I think a hundred years ago, it was very clear. It's like, okay, five years of cubism. Now it's five years of this, mm-hmm. five years of that. I don't think that's been going on where you can clearly say like, okay, everybody's talking oh, about yeah. this now. And in five years, no. Yeah, yeah. And Things are fuzzy. It's funny that you mentioned like the surreal, and it's no longer five people in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's much more global than that. Like uh, the internet movement that you and I have been a part of at different times was um, was totally organic in that it, it certainly wasn't localized to a certain geography. Though Berlin had a large role, yeah. I don't feel like uh, it was everywhere. That said, like it's funny because there's an American artist in this residence who lives in a smaller city in uh, the south of the United States. And he felt, you know, I was talking to him about how in Toronto, and we've talked about this in the Smaller Countries episode, I felt really isolated and the internet was the only place I could find a network that understood the ideas that I was talking about. Um, And through recording this podcast, we found that the same thing is true yet again, where, you know, people are emailing us and saying like, oh my God, it's so great to listen to you because I don't have this voice in my local community. and so that that there is like the internet is that global yeah. village thing that Marshall McLuhan but talked about. But then maybe we we can uh, review in four weeks how much that happened uh, compared to. So we have the internet network, and now you have a very local network. It's a, a defined period of time in one space. Here's one thing I'll say though that changes all relationships always, like. Um, it does affect the, what motivation people have, and I think it ha- and it has to do with just bare pure survival. Which is like, if you introduce money, even a small amount of money, it does change like people's motivation, right? Like, and it's not it's it's nowhere on the list of the top three motivators people have. Like, money always, but up until a certain point, I think for artists like also, it's, it's a bigger motivator than other people because they're always on the on the brink of their they they exactly. don't the money and facilitates so I, them yeah. having time for art and so it, it it's that thing when you it, so, most people i know who have a job are not unhappy about their salary because once you have more than 2000 a month it's, it doesn't really matter hmm. yeah they say 75000 yeah something you, whatever the amount is that, but there's, there's a certain amount yeah. then it, but for artists who are on the brink of starvation who can't pay the phone bill or they can't buy groceries that's yeah. right yeah and so it's literally a survival problem. They're like this precarious. They're the, one of the most precarious, you know, worker groups. If you look at them at them that way, uh, most art, artists make less than ten thousand dollars a year. You know, so they always supplement their income, uh, and which puts them in this position where they they have to make a choice: should I like not do my bar shift or? eat dinner or participate it, in this artist project where the museum or the entity is asking me to do it for free for exposure. But how, right? If, if like, you would compare the economics of artists to the economics of athletes, um, mm-hmm. there's also, there's so many people doing sports, not making money with it, but at a pretty high level, like they train four times a week and they, they do friendly competitions. Mm-hmm. I don't hear them complaining about not getting funding. I'm, I'm just, I'm not saying... Yes, and I'm just trying to compare this. Or like musicians or any... 
Uh, you do. You definitely do hear it. I mean, I, d- I hear it in Canada because the Canada restructured the way it funds athletes to be more sustainable because athletes were literally starving mm. to death and they couldn't compete in the Olympics because they couldn't they couldn't afford to live. Yeah. Right? It's like I'm spending all and, my time. Uh, but of what training, I mean is even Olympic like, level is already yeah. that's like lifetime dedication. But I'm talking more about people who enjoy. But most Olympians have a part-time job yeah, outside yeah. of uh, if they're not funded. But that's already like, the top of the top. Can, but, uh, I mean, there's so much in between. Yeah. Yeah, and people can't do it for very long. So basically, what happens is people do these things for a short amount of time, usually until they're about thirty years old, and then they can't mm-hmm. continue. I, I don't know the actual age demographics, but it would be interesting to break it out. I'm I'm thinking that few people could operate after that time because collective labor becomes like more and more expensive after a certain age you know while you're in school everyone has is willing to be in debt yeah right and then and so they're willing to also invest time because time has no value right there's no value you mean people help each other more if i spend an hour on this yeah yeah yeah, while you're in school it's easy to form a collective but as soon as school's finished now you start to associate the time you spend with a dollar you earn and also with the the liabilities you have the debt you've incurred while you're in school plus now your rent, you know, and all of these other things. You're like, okay, I could spend my time here and live or my time there and have fun, but not be able to afford rent. And then it becomes this, this value equation problem. But I do think this impacts how teams perform if you're getting a group of artists together because not every artist can even survive. There's, there's also know, something support. interesting about that, that people tend to be more inventive when they're younger. There's a certain period of creativity mm-hmm. which might come from... But they're subsidized like 100%. Yeah, but it, it, it's parents. curious if that's just... The same way you learn language is easier when you're younger than 15. Like maybe the creative period is is a biological thing or is it because you don't have responsibilities and you're free to think? Mm -hmm. I mean, because there's people that would argue that if the subsidy is too large, then people stop, you know, like there's this American dream that's been glamorized, which is because I hear it over and over again, especially when I'm in Europe, people are like, those Americans, they have so much hustle. Like there, you know, there's this mm-hmm. energy. The people talk about the American energy, like it's alive, and it's alive because they're on the brink of death. No, right? like that, or at least I think America's like a, just a very big market is. in one language. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, because everyone, there is no public subsidy, right? There's no safety net. If you don't hustle, if you don't work hard to achieve something, like it's been glamorized that the American is capable mm-hmm. of more. But what you don't see is all the people that yeah. don't make it, yeah. right? all the people that end up either financially ruined or worse. So, um, I don't know. I, I, we've drifted oh, off yes. topic <laughs> and I've ended up in <laughs> but my maybe typical, that's your style of management. socialist rant. <laughs> I don't know. I, I know that we're running out of time, but uh, I think I we can do, do a, a longer proper, episode because uh, we missed one week, but uh, depends on your, oh, that's and I'm really even, interested in, in uh, what you have to say about management. I don't have much to say about it, but I think you have so much experience with the, the creative intent of a person and the world that is mm-hmm. attacking that creative intent and at the same time nurturing it and yeah i mean i've said previously what's required to lead a group of people first and foremost is a strong sense of purpose right if you have no people are unwilling to so the first rule of management is create a sense of purpose hopefully you don't have to create it like as an imaginary story hopefully the people you're working with believe uh, in what mm-hmm. you're doing, and you can tell that story. And so that well. that works better you, you in, in that, companies than in art, because it, with art, it's hard to find. Purpose I don't think that's no. true. 
I don't think that's true, but I think the world's most of the world's companies figured this out a long time ago and they all have like their mission statement or their origin story figured out, right? That's how that became yeah. a common thing because they knew that they that was core thing, for, not just for motivating people that they've hired, but, but for attracting new people. And to there's also trends in management. So is, is the idea of one mission kind of an old fashioned thing? No, having a mission, like a focused mission, is still considered like a so best practice. So even because I hear all these things about different styles of management, uh, agile mm-hmm. and uh, who knows what, there's like a million. Oh, well, that's a process. Oh. So process is a part of management. The way I think about management is that there are three P's to management. There's people, platform, and process. So if you get those three kind of P's, and I, don't, I didn't read this, but it's come to me through various uh, various people, mentors, and coaching and books and stuff but it, the basically the people is the people you hire how you coach those people up like um you know people are only one one third of management then there's uh the processes that's the way they work so when you say agile agile scrums specifically is the way most software teams work as cross-disciplinary teams they work on this like sprint cycle which is just like a one week's iterative cycle for ma- uh, working uh in relationship with the customer and then platforms are really the things, the tools and like the kind of the, the foundations that teams work off of. And that's really important to get right. Is for, that infrastructure uh, management? Yeah, but infrastructure can be anything from like um, like a development image to in the case of designers, I often talk about like making sure there's a solid pattern library or atomic system for design that they can build on top of. But it, it could be something historic like, you know, the grid system. Mm. Uh, you know, which is a Swiss typographic system, or it could be color, as Johan yeah, Itten has yeah. like you know written so, about. So one something. thing that interests me about management is that I think in companies you want to appear not stiff and spontaneous, and they always use the word creativity as an important thing. It's like, guys, we need to get more creative. Mm-hmm. And in in art, <laughs> in museums and galleries, no one ever mentions the word creativity. And Basically, what everybody's trying to do is appear like a bank, like reliable, trustworthy. Yeah. This is going to make it through the ages. We all wear suits. And then you might find a company that's making a bazillion and everybody's wearing T-shirts and they all look like they're in college. So there's these opposite cultures. Mm-hmm. But even still, there's a lot of discomfort. So within some companies, uh, they're organized. Uh, management's really interesting, depending on what startup you look at. Some are or really disorganized and that's viewed as the way to move fast almost all startups if we're just talking about startup management believe in one pure the purest value of all values for startups is speed Hmm. and the reason for that is that they have a set amount of money or runway before they run out right and and then everyone has to go home is that also why a lot of companies fail that are not started by developers but by business people and then it's really hard to do software if you're not a coder like a lot of startups were started by people who actually code themselves that's right usually they um they mismanage their money in relationship with the, the cost but uh, uh, most startups actually fail apparently because you know people fall in love with their solutions i'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard this before but it's the most commonly cited reason which is to say they fail to like actually ask the target you know person that whether or not it solves would you, the problem would you say that's for that person the for too that geeky? customer like they fall in love with the technology and they don't think of the use case yeah 
Yeah, we call it solution first mm. linking. Um, yeah, but that's and it's not really management so much as like you know that's just a design business problem really. Like most people just fall in love with their engine. That's a problem for engineers too. I'm sure you've watched like Shark Tank or something. You've seen some come off, come on and like show this brilliant quote unquote invention that they have, and you're like who is that for? Right? They fail to identify a customer, and then they fail to identify a problem that actually needs yeah. solving. Is is it is it um, sometimes really is it the best to just think? I have a problem, and if if it fixes a problem for me, there's probably more people like me. Well, that's how a lot of successful companies start. Unfortunately, if you're like of a certain privilege and class and power, the problems you have might not be yeah, relevant. Yeah, that's what they accuse the, the uh, Silicon Valley of: that they find all these things that basically sustain college life. So, uh, yeah, like. It, you don't need like not everyone needs a juice smoothie mixer that's 10% faster than <laughs> or something they actually just need affordable food uh, but yeah that's a, it's a common accusation it's absolutely correct uh, to accuse them because I have that. a very privileged um, idea for an app and I think it's a problem we both have is like you travel to other cities and the, the common audience on Yelp doesn't match with your taste so you want to find mm, the one cool, and I thought, I'm thinking of a startup because artists always know the best restaurants. And so what you need mm-hmm. is a Yelp that, or something like it, only, only for cares. artists that people at large could use, but only artists can submit. <laughs> okay. Now who, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Because so basically you're saying artists are taste no, but makers, artists but specifically they have a lot of artists? time, but they don't have a lot of money. So it's easy to say what's the best uh, restaurant, and you look up like Michelin stars, and it's four hundred dollars. But artists often know yeah. like oh, go to this hole in the wall, and it's amazing, and it's three dollars. Yeah, yeah. You're. I mean, I definitely do. And that. I think it's I think it would be helpful city. to a lot of people who are not artists. But as soon as they're there, then maybe... The yeah, that's the problem. Because I've, I've spoken to people about this idea. And it's like, you know the secret spots. And it's like, yeah, but I don't want to share those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the problem with the elitist artist. Um, because the other yeah, problem is you might go to a city and then you have some friends there and you email them. But that means if I ask them, what are your five favorite restaurants? That means they want to hang out and I don't want to hang out. This like things in a this problems in a foreign city thing though is really not a problem for most of the world because most of the world can't afford <laughs> yeah. to travel. But it is. But the I'm, most I'm trying to give an example of a design of an elitist uh, <laughs> living in a bubble and thinking okay. the world needs this. Yeah, it's like God. I only wish I could find the trendiest restaurant in this exclusive. No, not even city. trendy. Like just nobody <laughs> even knows about it. Yeah. Oh no, uh, even knows about it. They have the best roast. Exactly. Chicken. Yeah. It's always it's it's always like the I mean. I wish that's. I wish someone just like talked to restaurants or gave them a like an anarchist cookbook for like how to run a restaurant, which is like do one thing really well and yeah. nothing else. Uh, if the whole world organized their reorganized their restaurants around this like kind of verticalization of ingredients and special and expertise, we well, would American diners have, like, are the opposite. Everywhere. They have these menus that are like as big as a newspaper. Yeah, but, I mean they've got some classic dishes. They're almost like cocktail yeah. menus. The now we're really off topic. Yeah. But the, no, the, the the interesting thing to me is management and business often applies to finding something that can scale and that's useful to a lot of people. And now you're applying management to mm-hmm. art, which then... It, that's just interesting to me, this contradiction of uh, 
techniques that were developed to, for mass market and then applying mm-hmm. them to something like art. Well, imagine the artists like, you know, they were doing earthworks, which were quite solitary and like, like kind of like symbolic in a way, but they were affecting large areas yeah. of land. Um, they were thinking on a monumental scale. And I think like... But still relatively unknown interesting. to people. Like if you ask someone, do, but could not, you name five land artworks? That would be hard. That's a, yeah, they do Spiral Jetty and then they then they think of James Terrell maybe. But if you take the same concept though, like of uh, earthwork... And you just substitute the material with people and like sociology. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that there's potential in all of us to like reshape the world for good. We always just assume that like, and and like, why shouldn't artists be a part of this conversation? Is my point. We we always assume the world is as it comes to us. That we're on we're in this age of acceleration, and that um you know there's it's inevitable that we'll end up with like what we have yeah. like almost like people predict like of course we ended up here you could see yeah, the yeah, results yeah. like it's well that's maybe my same point too. with the food app it's like artists will have a very specific view and uh, it's very it can be useful to the audience at large yeah but i think yeah i mean also our point with the food app is like someone would have already made it probably if it was a great idea is our assumption yeah, right like yeah. we just assume that everything great is art already exists but i'm just saying that if you ha- if it doesn't exist yet, that's what I'm interested in as an artist. So I'm not, you know, the history of art is relevant to me only in so much as it like helps me understand where what was possible, what was once thought impossible that became mm-hmm. possible. Um, like, you know, no one thought that the, you know, painting could reach a level of realism that like the Dutch Golden Age uh, produced or something like that, or no one thought like uh, that uh, you could achieve. Um, you know, you could make video art that had like uh, a philosophical, you know, uh, understanding of of identity, or no one thought that you could like you could build a land artwork that was like as you know visible from space, or no one thought that you could change the perception of um, space. Like no one James thought Terrell artists could make a podcast. No one thought artists make a podcast exactly. Anyway. I, I didn't cite very great examples there, but no one, <laughs> it's hard to avoid the cheesy ones. No one thought looking into another artist's eyes would make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> Some real, real oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe people like that work. But I can I can understand because you understand this too, which is if you get the work to be really focused on a single message, and this is true of like this is a good management philosophy too, is like communicate clearly and concisely, but open the door to vulnerability and you know exploration. Then you can then then you can make an impact. It's always funny. I always remembered Yoko Ono and John Lennon. You know, I read an interview with Yoko Ono once and she said like, you know, I always had these like little, Yoko Ono was like a fluxist, she's still a fluxist, she's an amazing, she was an amazing artist, but she's like, I always had these little ideas and then John would come along and say like, that's a great idea, but why don't you simplify it and then put it up on yeah, posters yeah. or billboards all over yeah, the they world were a great combo. and make, invite the media, and invite yeah. the media, right? And she'd be like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Why would I do that? And she, he'd be like, because this is such a great idea, we need to yeah. reach more people. It's it, funny, I know? really like Yoko Ono and, and I can't stand Abramovich. Well, because Yoko Ono is cool. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to. It's one of those things. It's hard to explain, but there's definitely overlap. So maybe we do a continued episode on management. I can do uh, how to run a (laughs) one-on-one, how to run a meeting. (laughs) This is not how you do it. There's all these like practical skills. 
uh, but certainly it starts with inspiring people and that's not that different from being yeah. an artist and it no and it's about getting to know your audience and who you're for and stuff like that yeah I, i'm very interested to see how it develops so maybe we we recap or evaluate in four weeks yeah i'm not afraid for it to fail because i'll just do it differently that's uh, so the funny uh, funny uh line everybody always use don't be afraid to fail uh, I know it's a bit of a startup, uh, and you have to shake phrase, things up. And all it's the time. very few. Well, very few startups actually practice it. Oh, and I forgot about the most hilarious and fun management story, which is um, Zappos and their holacracy. Oh, yeah. uh, do uh, maybe if just as a parting thought, like Zappos, the shoe like, tried to reinvent management complete. Yeah, the shoe company, online shoe sales company. They tried to reinvent management completely with this concept they called holacracy. <laughs> Which is basically the like they ran so their shoe company like a squat. <laughs> they ran it like a commune or a squat, but basically the idea was like complete bottom-up management, which is already something that startups practice, like flat hierarchies. But they said like, no, no, we're going to get rid of all the rules and everything will be from the bottom up and people will find it's ways very interesting. Yeah. to like... It is. And uh, they lost about 30% of their employees when they did this, but they are still, I think, operating as a holacracy. And Tony Say, their, uh, their founder... Um, has written books about this and he yeah he also tried to change a neighborhood the same way I was talking about Theaster Gates tried to do in in uh, Las Vegas but he didn't call it art he just called it like a community mm-hmm. project um, and it didn't work <laughs> <laughs> like it kind of worked it's, but it, then it ran out it's of interesting maybe that's a question about uh, management it's, it's management always uh, revolves around hierarchy hmm yeah, power and people. Does, the, does that affect you personally sometimes, that role? Like, it, it's weird that people look at you for approval and you think you're an equal? Yeah, it can be very difficult and you don't want to get into design by committee. So it's sometimes, they in management, they talk about this difference between times where you need to show something to someone, where you show them the way, where, or you ask them a question, rather, and times where you tell them mm-hmm. how it is, right? But when... And there's an equation that's like pretty subjective, but like a junior employee actually craves or desires to be told what to do, because if you ask them what to do, they don't know, right? But once they do know, you really have to shift into asking questions because they have to build and do so self-discovery. There's right? a lot of parallels does. with teaching. Yeah, it's very similar. It's all, like management is basically teaching. It's well, now we're getting practice. somewhere because teaching is is a there's a whole apprentice. Uh, teacher tradition in art for millennia and there's still a lot mm-hmm. of art schools and in, in, in Germany they still have that model of following a famous artist like I studied with such and such that's a big culture and there's mm-hmm. and there's a more university model of PhD students and so there is a model of, of managing artists and it's it's called academics yeah, or like, you know, there are residencies where there's mentorship or there are like, po- you know, post there there even like there's a, a school here in um, in Oslo and there's uh, called Project Schoolen and it's like a school where you don't get a degree, but like there are teachers in classes and uh, it's just like a, it's a it's a place where you can go to learn from experts or learn a material or yeah. craft or something. I think. Well, the, yeah, I, I think that um, this is a, it clarifies a lot for me because when you said having social projects that uh, as a material it's just the same as clay it's kind of I also understand that a teacher is in a way an artist because the teacher is shaping the students and they are creating artworks so the teacher is is developing 
these different algorithms that each on their own start to develop artworks. But I, I think in the end of the day, there's still a distinction between an artist and a teacher. And they can overlap, they can be the same person, but I still think they're different activities. Yeah, and like I make a lot of the work I made early on was actually the work of my mentor mm -hmm. teacher. I just pretended like it was my <laughs> own work, right? And then it, but it was, but it was a starting point. It was yeah. something to start with, um, just like a yeah, someone learning to you know make swords or something <laughs> yeah. in the 18th century. Yeah, and then you yeah. you give it your anyway. Own Definitely when I when I did teach, I thought of my I did manage my class like I managed my team at work. And it was um, I brought a lot of the same methods and ideas to the classroom. Like as one example, I came into the school and everyone was like, oh, these kids are terrible. They're going to like let you down. They're going to be late. They're going to do this or that. And I was like, what if I came in with the opposite assumption? But what if I told them that? Right. So like I started the first class with this like speech like I was told that you're going to be rotten horrible you wouldn't show up for class da, 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 by all these other teachers and I think it would be good if you know instead of assuming that was true that we work together mm -hmm. to prove them wrong right so I gave I gave them a very simple sense of purpose I gave them autonomy which is also important you know to it, make it almost sounds about like that movie that Dangerous with Minds them. with Michelle Pfeiffer and she has to go in the school with the uh, <laughs> 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 I never even saw the movie but it's like well, I always had this like yeah. dead poet society image in my head. It's like everyone stand on their desk and see the world from a different perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I like I saw an interview with Peter Saul, the the painter, and he said he was an artist because he doesn't like to deal with people. That was his main motivation for being mm. an artist. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one way of making art, right? I think that's maybe the in conclusion of the good point is like. And I think one of the ways our podcast works is that like we have different perspectives on this, but you can make art however you want to. It's the one thing where yeah, there are no yeah. rules for how to do it. And so, yeah, sure. If you want to make art about management, go for it. Like, uh, I'm not, no one's going to stop mm -hmm. me, actually. <laughs> I mean, potentially they could not fund me, but I'm self-funded. So, like, you know, try and figure <laughs> that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but I don't no think there's a lot of people who want know? to stop you. So that's also... <laughs> <laughs> well, every once in a while, you can you can get, definitely get a mob of people angry with you. And well, uh, if you're working with people, uh, I, I remember from teaching them. workshops. If if I was assigned to teach something and the students didn't feel like doing it, and me neither, that's hard to get the energy going. But in your case, mm -hmm. you're excited, so it should be fine. Yeah. Yeah, but energy is super important. And surrounding yourself with other people that are energetic, that's also like another management cliche. But I'm just like espousing yeah, this cliche. That's, that's an interesting so thing times, because I think energy, art to me is... Uh, you, Have you ever heard this? Which is like, you never invest in the worst people around you. You should always invest in the best. So a lot of us try and fix people, right? So we like invest in mm -hmm. correcting the in weaknesses teaching or of in others. General? But really the... In general, but in management, the rule is never invest in that. Never, first of all, never try and change someone or fix them. Instead, identify what they're passionate about, what wakes, what they're energetic about, and and add to that, strengthen that. Um, and then, on, among your top performers, you but should always a, invest in your top performers and let your and re, and neglect your low. That's performers. a very capitalistic that is, approach. You, I don't think that works for education at large. If you if you're in an underprivileged school and you're like, oh, I'll just hang out with the top students. 
<laughs> well, the idea there is if you neglect the top students, then they become the low students. And what you really want to do is actually get your top students to mm. teach the bottom students. So what you, it's not really about you. It's about yeah. the class. And what you need to do is like adjust the organism because the low student or the low employee is more likely to respond to a fellow peer but if than you, to, a position, to a person in authority. If you look at the analogy with gardening, sometimes one species can take over and, and uh, take all the sunlight and then the other species don't flourish. So, Well, that's why you just need to make that dominant species part of the teacher or management network, right? They are okay. already a manager. You just haven't given them the authority but that happens in the classroom too right you can take the top it sounds a bit libertarian for the other students. capitalistic <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's, it's about no. nurturing anyway like a plant so we uh i think we're probably yeah i think, think? Uh, it, it, this episode was all over the, it, it's funny i felt so bad for not missing a week but uh yeah i did too but we were just really both in difficult in schedules and uh, but you were in the Netherlands, and we didn't talk much about it except for the screens, everything. But I yeah, yeah, more it was amazing. That. Maybe it was really, it folds into a yeah. theme next week or something. Well, and and so this um, week's field recording, I was in the Netherlands working on textile works, and uh, it's a place called the Textile Museum slash Textile Lab. So it's it's half museum, half workspace, and there's a big. It, you visit it as a visitor, and you can see production and result. That's basically the idea. But artists can rent time there and work on all kinds of techniques. And so I walked around with my phone recording the sound and there's uh, jacquard weaving and there's embroidery and laser cutting mm. and tufting and... Uh, jacquard, the original the original computer program. Exactly. Mm. So it, it, it but you, <laughs> you, I'm walking around through all the spaces. They're spinning yarn and everything. So maybe some experts can hear which is which but uh, I think the jacquard loom is kind of overpowering oh. the rest of the sounds it's a lot louder than embroidery so uh, there's a lot of yeah, clicking yeah, yeah. and clacking so enjoy the recording and then uh, cool. anything you want to we, we should ask people to send uh, in yeah. recordings because we haven't had well you should many, record uh, the fjords user submitted. I will record the fjords if someone sends in uh, a recording of Somebody records some fights. Never heard before. How did I know you were going to say that? I was literally thinking in my head, Raphael's going to say farts. Why did I open the door? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, well, okay. we know where your mind is. <laughs> okay. Well, everybody, uh, right. enjoy your week, and we'll hopefully be back next week and uh, listen to the sound recording of the Textile Museum.
Davis Rodgers, the flavor of the 